Section six of Ulysses S. Grant by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part three. Upon Halleck's promotion, Grant was put in command of the armies of the Mississippi and the Tennessee. The battles of Iuka and Corinth were fought. By November, Grant was once again able to go on with his interrupted strategy of flanking the Mississippi. It was not until the following spring that he walked to his goal with a firm step. In the months between, he was not only hampered by many external embarrassments, but his own mind had not come to a final clear determination. The jealousy of McClernand, the treachery that lost him his base at Holly Springs, and his own not very sound plan of cooperating with Sherman on the East Bank, these, among other causes, helped his first failure. Then, in the winter months, his canal-cutting and various operations upon both sides of the river were defeated by nature herself. Perhaps he should have known that land and water were tangled in such a chaos here that the first chapter of Genesis alone could have straightened them for an army. One sentence from Porter's report of the Yazoo Pass attempt, and what the gunboats had to do in the narrow channels that enmeshed them with vegetation, draws the whole picture of this winter without need of further comment. I never yet saw vessels so well adapted to knocking down trees, hauling them up by the roots, or demolishing bridges. Yet, perhaps, Grant knew all this very well. His troops were in a wretched, watery camp opposite Vicksburg. Disease had heavily visited them. The graves of their late comrades were forever in their sight on the narrow levee. Moreover, the country clamored for results, and enemies, both military and civil, were pressing Lincoln for Grant's removal. It is recorded that General Thomas arrived at Porter's headquarters with an order to relieve Grant if it were necessary. Porter told Thomas that he would be tarred and feathered if his mission became known. Perhaps Grant dug his canals and cut his trees to give his soldiers less time to think of their hardships and to make an appearance of activity until the high water should subside and permit real activity. His mind was digging, too, deep into the national situation. In silence and independence it reached its own convictions, and then, attentively listening to contrary opinions, disregarded these and pursued its way. And in everything that Grant did, the admirable navy supported him brilliantly. On April 16 it ran the Vicksburg batteries in an hour and forty minutes. In six days the transports followed, and Vicksburg beheld the army that had been sitting in the mud for so many weeks depart, to return presently on its own side the river with a vengeance. Grant's arm was at length raised to strike. His first blow glanced at Grand Gulf, the southernmost defense of Vicksburg. But the next day he stood on the east shore, the tall, defended, baffling shore, which secession had called its Gibraltar. To do this he had had to come down the river to cross at Brunsburg, some thirty-one miles below Vicksburg. 
When this was effected, I felt a degree of relief scarcely ever equaled since, he says. I was on dry ground on the same side of the river with the enemy. He now maneuvered to deceive Pemberton, and easily did so. On May 1, he won the Battle of Port Gibson. He next made his great decision to cut loose from his base of supplies and not inform Halleck until it was too late to stop him. When Sherman, with several others, strongly protested against this cutting loose from the base of supplies, the triumphant flash of daring and right judgment which is Grant's highest claim to purely military greatness, the general listened, but went on with his plan. And now, indeed, he raised his arm and struck. On May 17 he had Pemberton pinned in Vicksburg, and a telegram from Halleck ordering him to wait for General Banks. In six days he had won four battles, prevented Johnston's joining Pemberton, and was now surrounding Vicksburg itself. After the bloody frontal attack of the 22nd, something he owned in later life to have been a mistake, he settled to a siege. We must remember that Pemberton had made many things easy for him. Pemberton was deceived by his preliminary maneuvers. Pemberton set about cutting him from his base a week after he had no base. Pemberton divided his own strength instead of falling on him with the whole of it, when he was scattered. Pemberton ignored all of Johnston's better recommendations, ending by refusing the advice to let Vicksburg go and escape with his army, at least. All these follies had been committed by Pemberton, but we must also remember that Grant knew Pemberton was the man to commit them, and fought his campaign accordingly. And so, on July 4, 1863, Vicksburg surrendered. Pemberton remained seated with his staff as Grant came up on their veranda. None of them seemed to have been of the metal that loses gracefully. But in the words of a gentleman, the Comte de Paris, as victory put Grant in a position to be indifferent to this, he affected not to notice it, and, addressing Pemberton, asked him how many rations were needed for his army. Consideration for people in distress was, after the fact of surrender, his first thought here, as it had been at Donelson. And with the same humane watchfulness, when he presently discovered a Mississippi steamboat captain overcharging his men and officers going home on furlough, he compelled the excess to be refunded. I will teach them, he said, that the men who have periled their lives to open the Mississippi River for their benefit cannot be imposed upon with impunity. So Pemberton surrendered Vicksburg to Grant in a sulky temper and proceeded to write articles proving Johnston was to blame. On the day before, the noble and defeated Lee was saying to a Confederate brother, Never mind, General, all this has been my fault. It is I that have lost this fight, and you must help me out of it the best way you can. For on the preceding day, July 3, 1863, the Union had won Gettysburg. On this day of Vicksburg surrender, Lee began his retreat. Had two separate nations been at war, here they would have stopped. 
but one piece of a nation was trying to separate itself from the rest, and the rest had to follow it and wholly crush it. This necessity was clearly seen then by no one so much as by General Grant. Off in the West by himself, his clear, strong mind had grasped it, and every blow he struck was to this end, and every counsel that he gave. The North began to feel this huge force resting for the moment on the banks of the now open Mississippi. It looked away from Virginia, scraped raw with the vain pendulum of advance and retreat, to Donelson, Shiloh, Corinth, Vicksburg. Here it saw no pendulum, but an advance as sure, if as slow, as fate. Therefore Grant's name began to be spoken with a different sound and a southern newspaper perceived in him the largest threat to confederate armies it called him the bee which has really stung our flanks so long after donelson grant had written sherman i feel under many obligations to you for the kind terms of your letter and hope that should an opportunity occur you will earn for yourself that promotion which you are kind enough to say belongs to me I care nothing for promotion, so long as our armies are successful, and no political appointments are made." He did not now relish the suggestion of his being ordered to the Potomac, which first came to him at this time. He wrote, "'My going could do no possible good. They have there able officers who have been brought up with that army.' Meanwhile, Vicksburg had made him a major general in the regular army. Lincoln had written him his hearty personal thanks, and the cause of the Union had brightened at home and abroad. The London Times and Saturday Review had lately been quoting the Bible as sanction for slavery, for England dearly loves the Bible, but now many voices in London became sure that slavery was wicked for England dearly loves success. Grant was more pestered than ever now with Jews and other traders. As he wrote Chase on July 21, any trade whatsoever with the rebellious states is weakening to us. It will be made the means of supplying the enemy with what they want. His sound sense, however, could not wholly prevail against the politicians. One would gladly dwell upon the story of the cotton, historically important and romantic in detail, how, for one example, a determined and beautiful lady with her French maid spent some six weeks on board a certain flagship and came triumphant away, bringing all the cotton she wanted and leaving all the reputation she had. But we must go on to Chattanooga. Again, as in the preceding year, Grant felt that one aggressive blow struck should be followed up by another, and Halleck again rejected the notion. Once more the gathered army was dispersed on various errands of secondary importance, and once more the railroad of last year was solemnly ordered to be repaired, this time by Sherman. In September, a fall from his horse in New Orleans confined Grant to his bed for twenty-one days. While he was still in bed, General Rosecrans, after preliminary success in Tennessee, 
got himself into the gravest difficulties at the Battle of Chickamauga, where, but for the splendid fight that Thomas made the second day, he would certainly have been destroyed by General Bragg. As it was, the Union forces escaped and retired into Chattanooga. The army could no longer attack. Very soon it could no longer retreat. Order was nowhere, and starvation was approaching. Jefferson Davis visited Bragg during this time, and looking down from a rock upon the beleaguered, helpless army, felt much natural joy. Like Donelson, like Vicksburg, like Corinth, Chattanooga also was a vital strategic point, a mountain funnel, the only one, through which the Southwest could send supplies to Lee. One coherent plan for relieving the starvation General Rosecrans evidently had, and to carry it out he was going to employ Hooker's command, at this time sent to reinforce him. It involved bridging the Tennessee River, thereby to acquire the use of an approach not commanded by the enemy. To state what geographical precision this plan had reached in the mind of General Rosecrans involves a question of accuracy between his memory and the memory of General W. F. Smith. Both, with some acrimony, have claimed the glory of thinking of it, and upon this point the official records are not quite specific. But the glory of doing it, and doing it to perfection, is certainly General Smith's. Enough has been said to remind the reader that we are walking here, as everywhere, upon the treacherous embers of controversy. Twice in September, Grant, still in bed, had sent Rosecrans assistance. On October 10, he received a summons to Cairo, and hobbled off on the same day. From Cairo on the 17th, he was ordered to Louisville, and on the way met the Secretary of War, who placed him in command of the newly created Military Division of the Mississippi. Matters were desperate at Chattanooga. Rains had melted the country to mire, and ten thousand horses and mules were dead of hunger. October 19, Rosecrans started with Smith down the river to view the best place for the intended bridge to open a better avenue of supplies. Rosecrans stopped at the hospital. When Smith reported from his inspection of the shore down the river, he found the general relieved by Grant, and Thomas in his place. Next day Grant, still very lame, began his journey from Louisville to Chattanooga. By train, on horseback through the washed-out mountains, and carried in dangerous places because of his injury, he reached Chattanooga the night of the 23rd, wet, dirty, and well, as Dana's literary pen wrote Stanton. And forthwith order began to shape itself from formlessness. Grant's enemies say he had nothing to do with it, that it would have come without him. To this there is a sufficient answer. It did come with him. Guessing what might have been helps history no better than the post-mortem cures the patient. And in truth, these critics are preposterous. Earth has not anything more childish than a military man airing a grievance. That night Grant listened and asked questions of the officers. These felt that somebody had come among them. 
He was delighted with the scheme for the new avenue of supplies which General Smith explained to him, and his mind was also filled with plans for aggression. After all these days of passive defense, he must have seemed to Thomas and the rest of that company like the flood-tide after the ebb. Next day he went to see where Smith was going to open the road. That night he wrote leaf after leaf of dispatches, brief, forcible, unambiguous, and with scarcely a change of a word or a pause to choose one. For such was his great power in this matter of writing what he had to say. He ordered up Sherman from Corinth, where Halleck's railroad building was delaying that general. He sent reassuring messages to Halleck about Burnside, who was threatened in East Tennessee. As we think of him during these days, reeling off orders and pulling the scattered shreds of mismanagement together, he seems like a quietly spinning dynamo, which, silent and unnoticed, in a small house supplies the current that drives a great system of moving wheels. At midnight on the 27th, General Smith began, and at ten next morning, brilliantly finished his opening of the new road. It was the first stroke of salvation for Chattanooga. That night the enemy under Longstreet fought Hooker on Lookout Mountain to retrieve this loss, but failed. The dynamo continued steadily spinning destruction for Bragg, who now did a foolish thing. He sent 20,000 men away under Longstreet to attack Burnside. At this, Grant nearly did a foolish thing himself. He ordered an assault. But Thomas saved him from this error. All the while Sherman, with his army, was coming nearer. Swollen waters and deep walking clogged their struggling march, and the battle was put off for them. At length Bragg, from his heights, saw them prowling in the heavy country across the river, thought they were going to help Burnside, and forthwith dispatched more help to Longstreet. And now the reader must see the shape of the country. Let him think of a theater, and stand on the stage, and look at the house. On the stage he is in Chattanooga, with the river and mountains behind him, and Sherman creeping behind them. In the house sits Bragg, all around the balcony. A valley cuts the balcony in the middle, but Bragg from both sides commands it as if the horseshoe were not split. At the right end of the balcony is Lookout Mountain, like a stage-box. The box opposite is the north end of Missionary Ridge, and the whole left side of the balcony is part of the same ridge. Bragg holds them all. His center is up on the left side of the balcony. His two wings are the two stage boxes that look at each other across the valley. He also holds a position in the middle of the parquet, called Orchard Knob. The parquet is Chattanooga Valley. To attack Bragg, there is a choice. Go at the center, cut him in two, and beat the stage boxes separately, or get around behind the boxes and attack both so that one cannot go to help the other. But the center was a straight climb up into the face of the enemy, and Grant determined upon the boxes. 
The left-hand box, the north end of Missionary Ridge, was to be the main affair, and Sherman was to conduct it. He was to creep round and there turn Bragg's flank, while Hooker was to turn the other flank on Lookout Mountain. Thus Sherman might cut Bragg from his base, which lay less than a mile behind that part of Missionary Ridge. Bragg never suspected this could happen. Sherman had crept out of sight, gone to Burnside, he supposed, and the Union troops seemed to him from his balcony to be thinking of his center and of Lookout Mountain opposite. So he did not much fortify the precious north end of Missionary Ridge. He was doing precisely what Grant maneuvered for. But Chattanooga is one of the great battles that melt to a new shape in the very hands of their sculptors. On Friday, November 20, a day of heavy falling rain, Bragg sent word to Grant, As there may still be some non-combatants in Chattanooga, I deem it proper to notify you that prudence would dictate their early withdrawal. I did not know what the intended deception was, says Grant. Meanwhile, no battle could begin until Sherman had wholly crept round behind that left-hand box, a direful work in the mud, with a bridge thirteen hundred and fifty feet long to build, and build noiselessly. On Sunday, a deserter reported that Bragg was falling back. Perhaps he was going against Burnside himself. If so, he should not get away without some trouble, at least. Therefore, on Monday, the little trouble occurred. Up on his balcony, Bragg saw going on down in the parquet what he supposed to be a dress parade of the Union troops. Suddenly they rushed. The parade blossomed into a sharp encounter, and before the Southern troops well knew what it meant, they had lost Orchard Knob. So the Union was a mile nearer to the rising land at the foot of Missionary Ridge. Bragg showed his strength on top, and then Grant knew that he was not retreating. Orchard Knob was now strengthened with artillery. Bragg was frightened, and took troops away from Lookout Mountain across to the other side, where the unseen Sherman was approaching. Through that night Sherman came out from the concealing hills upon the river, dropped silently down the river on the bridge-boats, caught all the rebel river pickets but one, and by dawn began his noiseless bridge of thirteen hundred feet, which General Smith finished by noon. By one he was marching to the foot of the ridge in a drizzling rain, hidden by clouds from the enemy's watch across the theater on Lookout Mountain. By this Tuesday night he was upon his end of Missionary Ridge, and for the first time saw a gap splitting him from the rest of the ridge. That retarding gap greatly changed the battle's intended shape. So much for Sherman on Tuesday on the left. End of chapter 5, part 3